Scripture lesson this morning is from uh, the book of Isaiah, once again, uh, from the ninth chapter, beginning at verse 6, again, these familiar words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then we read these words from the Gospel of John from the 14th chapter. Jesus is preparing the disciples for His departure. Uh, You know, the cross is before Him. And he is telling the disciples that he will go to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. And he says to the disciples, of course, you guys all know where I'm going. And then we pick up the the passage here. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. And then uh, finally, these words from 1 John. See what great love the Father has given us, has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Amen. Suppose for a moment that God wished to reveal Himself to us in a way that no one could doubt, ever doubt again, His existence. Suppose uh, uh, everyone would go out their door in the outdoors, they would look up in the sky, and they would see a huge message written across the sky, I exist. God. Now imagine that message was written across all the entire sky so that anyone in the world would be able to read that message in his or her own language. Wow. But there was no explanation at all for this. They they could not attribute it to astronomical phenomena. Uh, It was not the product of an airplane skywriting. I mean, there was just simply no doubt. God exists. And so everybody believed it. There is a God after all. So having seen this message, what do you suppose the reaction would be? Well, at first I suppose people would respond with fear and trembling, thinking that this signaled the end of the world. You know, so maybe, you know, people were packing all their stuff and going up on top of Mount Pilchuck to await the end. I don't know. Um, 
And then there will probably be a, a lot of people coming to church, at least temporarily, as they did right after 9-11, you know. But after a while, if that message persisted, people would begin to say, well, who cares? <laughs> so God exists. Cool. But what does that have to do with me? So there's a God out there. But what does he have to do with where I live, where I work? Now, God can write messages and start us all he wants up in the heavens. But what does he care about me? There are many people who believe God exists, of course. They believe in a supreme being. That is, there is some great force or some great power behind the universe. And people refer to this supreme being in a variety of ways, various names. Higher power, the great architect of the universe. In the popular one at seminary, the ground of all being. And the name that I really detest, I cringe every time I hear it, the man upstairs. But this remote God, some, this supreme being, by whatever name, is not exactly comforting. In fact, such a God is completely irrelevant to life. God may exist, but God is so distant and God is so remote as to have nothing to do with us. And so we are left to fend for ourselves, make our own way in this often dark and foreboding world. We can't relate to Him at all. He's so high, the supreme being. He's so ill-defined and so nebulous that he doesn't matter. Helmut Thielicke was a great German theologian and pastor. Uh, he ministered actually during World War II and those terrible years in Germany. Can you imagine? And he said, once said, tell me how lofty God is and I'll tell you how little he means to you. He says this could be a theological axiom. The lofty God has been lofted right out of my life. If all God is is supreme, so? <laughs> Telica goes on to say, God has become of concern to me only because He's made Himself smaller than the Milky Way. Only because He's present in my little sick room when I gasp for breath or understands the little cares I cast on him, or takes seriously the request of a child for a scooter with balloon tires. But you see, that's the kind of God we have. And that's what Christmas is all about. God has made himself smaller than the Milky Way, and he's entered right into this world, taking up residence right where we live, and he became one of us so that we could relate to him and he could relate to us. The wonderful news of Christmas 
is that God is not impossibly remote. He's not distant or uninvolved. Indeed, he cares about even the smallest details of our life, just like a good father cares about all the things that concern his children. In fact, God comes to us in Jesus as everlasting father. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, during this Advent season, we have been setting these names given to the Messiah. Isaiah, of course, didn't know what we know about this child, um, but we, of course, know him to be Jesus. We explored the meaning of the name Wonderful Counselor, which is a guiding name. Last week, we considered Jesus as Mighty God, a powerful name. And by the way, I don't have my Jesus in my pocket anymore. In fact, I don't know where he is. Oh, you have him. Oh, good. Well, I was hoping that he'd be let loose in the world, which is where Jesus needs to be. Uh, and uh, those of you who were not here next, last week don't have a clue what I'm talking about. That's okay. This morning, we take up a more intimate, compassionate name. It's the, uh, my most uh, the, the favorite of the names given here in Isaiah. Jesus is everlasting Father. Now, it may seem strange that Jesus should be called everlasting Father because we know Jesus to be the second member of the Holy Trinity, God the Son, who relates to the first member of the Trinity, God the Father, and also to the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. We believe in one God and three persons. So how can Jesus be the everlasting Father? We can quickly become confused by the ins and outs of the Trinity. Isaiah 9 verse 6 is not a description of the Godhead. The point is this. Jesus is everlasting Father in that He is the perfect embodiment of the fatherly heart of God. We read in the Gospel of John how Philip, one of the disciples, came up to Jesus and said, uh, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? I mean, you've been with me all this time. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. In other words, like Father, like Son. Jesus is the everlasting Father because He perfectly reveals God's fatherly concern for you and me. Many folks assume that the fatherhood of God is common to all world religions. That's not the case. Hinduism and Buddhism have a very different concept of God, of the divine. In fact, Buddhism is pretty much an, uh, an atheistic kind of a system. Islam has 99 names for God, but Islam never uses the name Father. Judaism speaks of God as Father, but only rarely and never in the familiar form and never directly addressed to God. God can be like a Father. 
Though for the most part, Judaism thinks of God as one who is holy and transcendent and majestic, you know, the one who sits on the heavenly throne and who meets people on mountaintops and in pillars of fire and fiery bushes and that kind of thing. Christianity alone speaks of God as an intimate, personal, loving Father. So when the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us how to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father. In the, in the Aramaic, Jesus' original language, the word used for Father is the intimate word Abba, which means Daddy. I mean, how revolutionary is that? We can address the creator of the universe as Daddy. We can have an intimate relationship with God who comes to us as Daddy. And in the Apostles' Creed, John Calvin notes that before the church in its wisdom called God the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, the church first wanted to affirm that God was a loving Father because the creed begins, I believe in God the Father. Now let me say that many people have a hard time with this image of God as Father for they may have had earthly fathers who abandoned them emotionally, physically, spiritually, father perhaps who abused them, who may not have been present to his children because of alcoholism or drug abuse or a host of other personal issues. For such folks, the word father is a loaded term, negatively loaded. The word father, in fact, evokes fear and disappointment and even anger. I'm always surprised as a pastor to hear how many people have father issues. So this is tough for some people to think of God as father, which is why when Isaiah calls the Messiah to come everlasting father, and when Jesus talks about the father, we have to understand what is meant. By Father, Scripture is referring to such qualities as love, compassion, forgiveness, long-suffering, strength, faithfulness, trustworthiness, qualities that Jesus perfectly displayed in His ministry among us. Earthly fathers will inevitably disappoint us in some way. And of course, they won't live forever. But our God comes to us in Jesus as the perfect Father who will always be there for us and who will never let us down. His fatherly love is everlasting. And to me, the, the, the quintessential example of the fatherly heart of God is to be found in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter. Um, this is probably it's the most famous passage in all of Scripture, I believe. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but really we ought to call it the parable of the extravagant son, I'm sorry, of the parable of the extravagant father because the father lavishes his love upon a wayward son who has gone off and has absconded with the family inheritance, or at least his share, came to ruin and offended his father in the process. And yet, the father 
upon his return, gives him the royal treatment. Treats his wayward, errant son with incredible uh, compassion and grace. And even as the son is still far off in a distance, going, going back home with fear and trembling, his father is out running towards him, embracing him with joy. And so full of joy is he that he, he uh, kills the fatted calf and throws a big party and restores his son to his place in the, in the household. The father never gave up on his son. He continually kept the porch light on, waiting and hoping for his son to return. His love for him proved to be everlasting. What a beautiful picture of God, the God that we have. God's like that father. His love for us is unconditional. And you know, we all need someone who will love us just the way we are, no matter what. And in Jesus Christ, we experience that kind of love. It's called agape love, love in spite of what we do or what we fail to do. God loves us like a good father. And if we want to know what love looks like, we only have to look to Jesus, who possesses, fully possesses, the Father's compassionate heart. So listen to these words. Actually, these are words uh, in, in the Old Testament. We don't often think of God as being tender in the Old Testament. But here are the words of, I guess you could say, the, the Father to us. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. And by fear we mean who, who revere Him, who respect Him, who love Him in return. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over. It's gone. This place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. We have an everlasting Father who loves His children. God came into this world in Jesus as the everlasting Father that we might become His children through faith in Him. And the most important thing for children to know is how much they are loved and valued and wanted. Sadly, far too many people feel very unloved and they suffer because of it. They may feel unwanted, uncared for, abandoned, ignored, forgotten by everybody, and therefore very lonely. A recent survey of 20,000 U.S. adults carried out by Cigna Insurance Company found that nearly half of people suffer from feelings of intense loneliness and social 
isolation. And these feelings, of course, tend to be exacerbated by the holidays. And what's interesting, but perhaps not surprising, is that people who spent more time on social media had twice the odds of having greater perceived social isolation. So that social media, far from bringing people together actually, makes people feel worse and even more lonely. And you can imagine when on Facebook all you hear is about the great things that people are doing and how healthy people are, and here you are, and everybody seems to have forgotten you. You've been left out of the party, right? Loneliness is, is an epidemic in the United States. Uh, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about how loneliness particularly is affecting the baby boomer generation as they age because of social dislocations and a variety of other issues. But people are lonely, and therefore there are people who are feeling unwanted and unloved. Researchers have found that loneliness takes a physical toll and is as closely linked to early mortality as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day or consuming more than six alcoholic drinks a day. Loneliness is even worse for longevity than being obese or physically inactive. So how important is it that everyone know God as Father, a Father who is always there, whose love is truly everlasting? Keith Miller, uh, who's a Christian leader, devotional writer, told about an outgoing 40-year-old woman who was part of a sharing group he led. And she shared this story with the group. This is what she said. When I was a tiny little girl, my parents died, and I was put in an orphanage. I was not pretty at all, and no one seemed to want me. But I longed to be adopted and loved by a family as far back as I can remember. I thought about it day and night, but everything I did seemed to go wrong. I must have tried too hard to please the people who came to look over me, and what I did was to drive them away. But then one day, the head of the orphanage told me that a family was coming to take me home with them. I was so excited that I jumped up and down and I cried. The matron reminded me that I was on trial and that this might not be a permanent arrangement but I just knew that it would be. So I went with this family and started school. I was the happiest little girl you can imagine, and life began to open for me just a little. But then one day, a few months later, I skipped home from school and ran into the front door of the big old house where we, where we lived. No one was at home, but there in the middle of the front hall was my battered old suitcase with my coat thrown across it. And as I stood there and looked at my suitcase, it slowly dawned on me what it meant. I did not belong here anymore. And Miller reports that when the woman stopped speaking, there was hardly a dry eye in the group. But then the woman cleared her throat and said almost matter-of-factly, 
This happened to me seven times before I was 13 years old. But wait, don't cry. It was experiences like these that ultimately brought me to God. When I was having so much trouble finding a sense of belonging from other human beings, I was driven to God. And there I found what I had always longed for, a place. She discovered that she had a father who would never abandon her, who loved her completely and unreservedly and everlastingly. She had a place in the Father's house. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. God came into this world in Jesus as Everlasting Father to adopt us all as his children. So let us come to the Father by faith and realize just how wonderful his love for you and for me can be. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that you have made yourself smaller than the Milky Way. And you've come to us in such a way that we can relate to you. And you can relate to us. Lord, you come to us as that perfect father, perhaps that father we never had. But you give the word father new content. You fill that word with love and compassion and strength and trustworthiness and faithfulness. You are all of these things. And so we would come to you as your children, knowing that you will give us only good gifts. We thank you for all that you've done for us, how you love each one of us. There may be somebody here who feels very unwanted and very unloved right now, but may they know your love for them. And may you know, may they know that you love them so much that you came into this world to be born among us, yes, but to die for us upon the cross. You died for everybody in this room, Lord. You did it for love. Thank you for your forgiveness, for setting us free and for being God, whom we also know to be Emmanuel, God with us always. To you be all praise and glory. Amen.